Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. Today, we are going to be talking to two of our colleagues here at TPM, uh, Tierney Sneed and Caitlin McNeil, uh, and they have been our team, uh, not just on the not just on the broader Russia story, but particularly the Paul Manafort trial and what we thought was going to be the two Paul Manafort trials. Um, They were some combination of them, or I guess in some cases, maybe both of them were in the trial pretty much pretty much throughout and have been to the various hearings and so on and so forth. So now that we we don't really know where precisely this is going, but we've clearly uh, passed a pretty critical a moment in not just the Russia probe, but specifically in the Paul Manafort part of it since last week. Uh, really, I think to pretty much everyone's surprise, uh, Manafort did the whole thing, flipped a full cooperation agreement and so forth. So uh, really quickly, before we get started, I want to tell you about uh, Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Want it in New York? Do you want New York City's favorite cold brew? Of course you do. Head to Grady'sColdBrew.com for free shipping on all their greatest hits. Grady's famous coffee concentrate is cold brewed, delivering the strongest, smoothest, most refreshing iced coffee on the market. Using a special blend of Indonesian and Ethiopian beans and chicory imported from France. Does France have like the best chicory? I've been wondering. They have a lock on the chicory? I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know. I guess. But since Grady uses it, it it must be pretty good. Grady's has a touch of natural sweetness without any added sugar. Grady's is independently owned and operated and has been brewing in New York City since 2011. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. Okay, so let's, uh, Tierney, I want to start with with you. Um, Tell us about, now, just for our, our listeners, you had one trial uh, in in the Eastern District of Virginia, across uh, across the Potomac, and there was going to we thought there was going to be a trial in D.C. And there's a lot of different logistics, not to mention different judges and so forth. So, Tierney, let's start with tell us about what was tell us about that Virginia trial, and let's start with the issue of logistics, all the different ins and outs that went into that. Uh, the trial was uh, a nightmare to cover logistically. Um, you had a courtroom that did not allow computers or phones inside, um, except for a, a small number of media outlets who had a, a desktop computer set up. But the, the vast majority of us were kind of completely shut off from the rest of the world while we were in the courthouse. Um, the only option for us to get stories out of the courthouse without physically leaving it was to call our editors from a payphone a couple floors down from the courtroom itself. So there was a lot of running down the uh, escalators, you know, trying to beat other reporters who wanted to use that single payphone, being really strategic about when we tried to, to call in stories. Um, so we knew we were kind of picking the, the perfect moment to get the news out while also not having to worry about waiting in a long line for the payphone. Um, and, you know, in some cases, we needed to run out across the street to a hotel room that uh, we had to get to store our phones and computers and have Wi-Fi access to file. So there was a lot a lot of energy put into managing those logistics um, that made this challenging, but also really fun to cover. Now, is that, okay, so, so you're saying that if you take all of the journalists that were in the courtroom at a given time, for any of them, if they didn't like literally leave the entire courthouse, go across the street, blah, 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 for any of them to, like they all had to use that payphone, like one payphone. So not every 
outlet was using the payphones, uh, a number of the cable news networks had a full, you know, tents set up outside. So I knew those reporters were often just running outside and they would have a, you know, an intern or someone holding their cell phone so they could, you know, file their notes that way. But there were at least, especially at the busy times, you know, you were competing with a half a dozen reporters at the very least, maybe more on when it was a break or when big news broke to get to that payphone. So a lot of what we did was try to figure out when we could get to those payphones when uh, no one else was thinking to go then. So we didn't have to worry about waiting. And, and uh, so, and why was it like? Why, why is that the case? Like, why? Why? Because it, it, it's it, my understanding was that the setup in D.C. was going to be quite different. So, why do they have these rules in that in that court in that in that courthouse? Every federal courthouse kind of gets to run its own show. Um, you know, when I covered the Chris Kobach proof of citizenship uh, requirement trial earlier this year, it was a completely different set of rules. In the case of this trial, you did actually have some outlets um, write a letter to the judge, Judge Ellis, seeking for a, some sort of media filing room, which is what we were going to get in the D.C. trial before, you know, it was obviously called off. Um, and he just declined and told us, get a hotel room. This is how we're running things. So it's really up to every courthouse how they want to, you know, accommodate the media. And some, I've had some great experiences with courthouses who have really helpful press staff who will go out of their ways to make things easy for you. This is not one of those circumstances. And 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 just so I understand this, that this isn't just Judge Ellis. This is the rules that cover the entire courthouse. So every you know, kind of there are obviously lots of judges work out of that work out of that courthouse. And then there was a petition directly to him to say, "Hey, this is a kind of unique situation, huge press interest. Can we do something a little different?" And he's like, "No." Yeah, correct. Okay. So, you know, there might have been a chief judge whose call this ultimately was, but I do know that Ellis himself was personally petitioned um, by a group of reporters, and he himself sort of declined um, to to accommodate us. So that's kind of where we were at um, in, in dealing with this. So, and I'd like to hear from both of you about this. So uh, many of our listeners will have, obviously, they... Pretty much everybody knows the outcome of that trial, and they will have seen your various reports during the trial and reports from other news organizations. But since there's no cameras in in or video either in in federal courts, a lot of us don't really have a complete feel for what happened. So, can you give us a just a general sense? People talked a lot about the judge being very cranky and very kind of hostile to the to the prosecution. Obviously. Uh, the, the the people in the courthouse got to see the jury um, and whatever one can glean from that. Give us a sense. What are Looking back, what are the big takeaways? What can you share with our listeners about being in that in that trial to give us a sense of, of, of how it, you know, of what it was like? Sure. Um, so, you know, when we first started covering the, the pre-trial, hearings, you know, before the actual, you know, before, before jury selection, et cetera, um, we could immediately tell that Judge Ellis was a talker. Um, and at that time, it was really amusing. You know, he would go off on these tangents. All of a sudden, he's talking about football and constantly joking about his old age. And we were like, oh, man, this is going to be a wild trial. Um, but during the course of the actual 
trial, his chattiness kind of took on a slightly different form, and he just seemed very hard on the prosecution, constantly jumping in, telling them to move more quickly, you know, interrupting them to ask questions, et cetera, um, that became, you know, at times frustrating to watch. Um, and I, I think we were all very curious as to, you know, if the defense had put on a case, you know, how he would have handled their, um, you know, direct questioning, et cetera. Um, and it was, it was interesting because I think probably the reporters and the public probably had a slightly different view of Ellis's chattiness and intervening than the jury did because he was very kind and almost chummy with the jury, kind of always joking with them about their lunch, making sure they could get out early. Um, they were, you know, sometimes sort of chuckling at his comments about, you know, baked Alaskas for for dinner, et cetera. So how, how, much, how much of the times when he was hard on the prosecution, how much of that was out of the view of the jury? So maybe they didn't see that stuff. Or was it like a mix? It, well, that was kind of the prosecution's big uh, issue that they took in Ellis, with Ellis. They, they did this in, um, you know, filings that we got to see, but also in bench conferences that became unsealed. Was the, the point they would make to Ellis is, you know, just don't do this to us in front of a jury. You can bully us all you want you know, and bench conferences are now in the rooms, but when they're in the room here and you're accusing us of, you know, making a procedural mistake or misleading you and, and when in fact we were correct in how we were doing things, you need to correct that. Um, so that's, I think, what was stressing the prosecutors out the most through it all was, you know, I don't think they were personally feeling like their feelings were getting hurt. It was more that a lot of these exchanges were occurring while the jury was still in the room and they feared that it was going to um, influence how they saw the prosecution's case. Um, right. And at the, at the end of um, the trial, the lawyers on both sides kind of discussed with the judge what kind of instructions the jury will get. Um, and that was one thing that came up, you know, that the prosecutors wanted Ellis to kind of tell the jury, like, don't consider my remarks necessarily when you're deciding. But, you know, one line in a jury instruction after the fact, it you know, they didn't even have the jury instructions in writing. So it's a little unclear, you know, just how much they had that, his comments in their mind as they went into deliberations. Right, right. Now, let me ask you this. And this is obviously, there's, there's a lot of tea leave reading in, in something like this. But from being in the trial and observing the jury, was there anything where they just sort of like stone faced and you just had no sense of 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 what they were thinking, or did that add some sense to you of how the trial was going, what they might do, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, the thing that I picked up on when I was watching them is that a vast majority of them did seem really engaged. You know, I would say most of them, not all of them, but most of them seem to be taking really diligent notes seemed to, you know, I didn't really catch anyone nodding off or anything. There were a couple who stood out as not really taking notes, not, you know, looking so intently. So, but, you know, I don't want to make any conclusions about who might have been this this one juror that kind of uh, resisted going along with any of the convictions. But, um, no, I, I didn't get the sense that the jury was sort of not paying attention the way they should have been. They, Whenever I checked, they seemed to be pretty engaged and taking it very seriously. 
Um, and, and, and if anything, I would say that what surprised me about the convictions and what, what, where they were hung versus where they had guilty verdicts is that it didn't, I, I wasn't surprised that, that there were some, you know, some issues with some of the, the counts. It was a, you know, pretty confusing case in some aspects, but it just didn't really line up with what, what counts I thought were really confusing and what counts I thought were really straightforward in terms of how they were presented to the jury. And I, and I guess at least based on what that one juror who came forward, who's actually very pro-Trump, but but also voted for, for convictions, it wasn't, at least my sense was, it was sort of a black box, just what that one juror was hung up on. Like it didn't, I didn't get a sense, at least from from the juror who went public, that, you know, the holdout juror really thought there was this problem with these charges. Did, did Was that your sense? I mean, it seems like we just kind of don't know what kind of what motivated. I don't mean motivated in the sense of like, you know, kind of good motivations or bad motivations, just what it was about those charges as opposed to the other charges. Yeah, my understanding was just that that one juror didn't necessarily give the other jurors you know, reasons for for not wanting to convict Manafort on those counts and that that juror just kept saying, right. I have reasonable doubt, I have reasonable doubt. So I just don't think we'll ever know. And I think there was just some kind of negotiation to try to um, get a decision on as many of those counts as possible. One thing, for instance, one, one, one and I don't know if this was really... Uh, what what did it but one th- that morning i guess it was god it was just last friday it seems like it was five weeks ago um when 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 the the manafort plea deal was announced um that one thing that came up is people were trying to figure out what was going to happen um why there might be a deal without cooperation obviously that was just not what was happening at all um but a few people said that Rick Gates was just a bad witness for the prosecution and that the government might, you know, want to avoid another trial with him as the star witness. What was your sense? How did he come off in the trial? Um, you know, it wasn't great. <laughs> I think it was I thought it was really interesting that they did put Rick Gates towards the beginning of the case. Um, you know, I think there was a lot of speculation of would he be their final witness? Where would they put him in sort of, because there did seem to be sort of a timeline that they were trying to follow and how they presented these various witnesses. And he and, and Rick Gates ultimately took the stand a lot earlier than we were all expecting. And I wonder if part of that was, you know, they wanted to get his evidence out there, but then they also wanted to have plenty of time for other witnesses to take the stand. Witnesses that were, you know, more reliable, kind of seemed to be of less poor character, if you will, to have less sort of uh, mm-hmm. junk in the trunk, if you will, uh, right. to to sort of corroborate everything he said and sort of to let them the, the jurors to forget, you know, all the kind of um, tar the defense was able to, to throw on, on Rick Gates during their cross-examination. Right. The prosecution in their closing arguments kind of made the point to the jury, like, we're not saying you should take, you know, Rick Gates's word you know, without questioning it. And they kind of pointed out, like, we have all these other witnesses that corroborate him. Um, And so I think that they fully acknowledged, you know, that he wasn't necessarily on his own their entire case. Right. So let me ask you this. Is it so I I guess there's two ways from for, for that I look at this. One is that just 
you know, the point is that he's a pretty sleazy guy and he was committing all, you know, most, if not all of the crimes along with Manafort. So just inherently, he's not a terribly credible guy. That's one part of it. The other part of it is some people just on the stand don't come off well, right? In that kind of amorphous, hard to put your finger on sense. They just don't seem credible. Was it a mix of those or is it mainly the first or what's... I mean, there was a number was of it? exchanges where where Gates would f- fall back on that. You know, I don't recall. I don't remember. I can't speak to that. I don't recall, which, you know, never, never looks good. It does, even if maybe he couldn't remember, it does look like you're hiding something. And then the prosecution right. would have to come back and really sort of stress in there. And they redirect that he can't lie on the stand. If he does, his plea deal goes up in smoke. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I do think I think Rick Gates sort of did as good as as well as he could to just sort of answer only the question that was in front of him and not go any further than he had to and try not to sort of engage when you had the defense sort of bullying him. But what it came off right. at times was a little bit of evasiveness and and you know sort of, I don't want to say sleaziness, but they, they made a big thing about his, you know, quote, secret life, you know, this, this mistress he apparently had at, at some point when he was working for Manafort and his, his way of sort of kind of, you know, trying not to engage in those questions and, and trying to play sort of dumb at some points. Um, definitely, I don't think played particularly well in front of the jury, um, especially when the, the defense had raised all these other doubts about why he was not the most reliable of witnesses. Right, right. So, okay, so now let's let's get into this now, because I guess there was the, the first reports of a possible plea deal, I believe, came up during the, uh, um, you know, while the jury was deliberating, right? Am, yeah. Am I remember, am I yeah, so the Wall Street right? Journal had the initial scoop um, during deliberations that but at that point it was a plea for the DC trial I don't think there's any there there was any sense that the that they were going to plea out for the Virginia trial it was going to be just over the second trial and the the report indicated that things had kind of fallen through but you know there was at least an indication that, that those talks were, were were starting you know even before the EDVA trial was over to to kind of get us right. to where we we got on Friday so let me ask you this. You're there with just in, in the nature of not just not just uh, covering a trial, but any any news event where you've got a lot of reporters on the case and, and you're kind of there day after day with the same people, you know, reporters sort of chit chat about, you know, kind of what they're seeing and, 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 and stuff like that. And one of the things that I am I continue to be <laughs> to be shocked at is the way that they it was out there that there were discussions of a plea deal, but they managed to really keep people thinking that cooperation was not going to be part of it. So from that from that first moment where there was at least some inkling that there were negotiations going on to last Friday, what was the sense among reporters covering the trial just based on all the information that was sort of washing over all of you about what was happening? Did people think he was going to flip? I mean, I guess what I struggled with in trying in trying to believe that could happen was that they'd come this far, you know, this they'd come yeah. they'd had months of of struggling over bail negotiations. So he was under house arrest up until June when he was thrown in jail for a witness tamper tampering allegations. 
And then, you know, the defense was who declined to consolidate the, the cases and, you know, kind of set things in motion so that there would be two trials. Then they go through this, you know, lengthy Virginia trial. You know, it seemed at a point you've come this far without agreeing to cooperate. You know, I still don't have an answer of what really changed that that now they felt that Paul Manafort felt like he was willing to cooperate, given just how much they were fighting to the very end to, you know, to not back down and to keep fighting all of these charges. Yeah. So do you have a better sense now, given all that's happened? No. Um, yeah, <laughs> or is it still kind of just, or is it still kind of just a mystery? Um, the the best, like, guess that I, in my head, is that it, I mean, not, I don't necessarily understand, you know, what led him to decide to cooperate versus, you know, the plea deal in general, but you know, as we know, like the government had a lot of Manafort's assets tied up. The reason why he was, you know, allegedly, you know, falsifying documents to apply for bank loans was because he was running out of cash. So, you know, maybe he really did want to fight this and it just came down to, you know, making sure that his wife would be okay for the rest of her life. And Downing kind of alluded to that a little bit in his brief statement after the plea deal was officially announced in court. Um, So that's really the best sense, but I don't think anyone really knows. One thing that really stood out to me in the courtroom in in Virginia is just how, how stoic his wife was. She had friends that would come in and sit with her during the hearing. But, you know, it was hard to really get a read of how, how she felt about all this and whether, you know, you know, I would see the most I would get reaction, see reaction from her is when the defense was, you know, particularly effective and either was able to poke some holes in some parts of the, the prosecution's case or had a good cross-examination. You would see her sort of nod and, and seem to get, you know, at least a, a small sign of, you know, optimism about where this was going. But I don't even get a sense from watching her for three weeks in the Virginia trial how much she had really understood how bad this looked for Manafort and how likely it was that he was going to lose on all these these counts. So I don't know if that played a role that maybe there was some, you know, ignorance or naivete about whether they would be able to be successful in fighting these charges. And when that came, kind of came crashing down with the convictions, that changed the calculus. But I didn't, watching her was really remarkable to me and just how stoic she was throughout all of it. Did you, you mention, I think, I think Caitlin mentioned Kevin Downing. Um, give us a sense of Kevin Downing is the is is Manafort's defense lawyer. Um, and then there were the the people on the prosecution team. Give us a sense of the lead lawyers. What were what was Downing like? What was I think it's Andres is the was the lead government lawyer in Virginia. Do I have that right? Uh, so in, in, in Virginia, the, the two main prosecutors was Greg Andres, who's on on Mueller's team. And then Uzo Asanye, who joined the prosecution for this particular case because he um, is a, a prosecutor based out of the, the courthouse, the Eastern District of Virginia, that they, this case was coming. So you want a, a local attorney. So those were the two main prosecutors on, on their side. And then on the defense side, you had Kevin Downing, who's been sort of there from the begin- very beginning. Um, but then a, a, a couple other attorneys who were brought on who were either specialists in, in tax or played some other role. You had uh, Richard Wessling did a lot for the defense. Um, 
And yeah, I would say uh, the defense was really uh, chummy. They would hang out at the bar afterwards. They, you know, they could have a rough day in court and you'd see them sort of kind of laughing and joking as they're getting in an Uber to go out to dinner or whatever. So, um, that's always the kind of thing, like, if I'm the defendant, I'm saying, like, fuck that, man. Yeah, I don't I mean, want you to feel good after right. I'm going to prison for the rest of yeah. my life. I mean, they obviously but obviously, lawyers a, have a to do that at some level. In the, in the courtroom, but I just think that's the nature of a trial when you're kind of stuck in a room for weeks on end with all these people. You kind of put yeah. your best face forward, you know, and try to at least kind of let your guard down a little bit when you're out of the courtroom and not be uh, just totally in um, game time mode um, and be friendly with reporters, be friendly with other right. lawyers. Right, no, yeah, yeah, no, and, and you know, to be fair to them, I mean, I mean that's, the mood, you know, yeah. And their mood after that jury note came out where you had the question about reasonable doubt and some other questions that suggested that there was some struggle in de- 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 deliberations, you could definitely see their mood shift considerably after that, that, you know, you know, this wasn't going to be just a slam dunk case for the, the prosecution. Right, right. Now, Kaylin, I believe you were you were the only one who was uh, on our team who was there. I, it, I think Tierney was on vacation, although I know you got pulled in remotely, Tierney, uh, because it was it was such a, a huge news day. But in terms of being in the courtroom the day when the deal was announced, walk us through that. And just the sort of the atmosphere, how it played out, what the big moments were. Sure. Well, you know, it felt way more like a media spectacle than the Virginia trial did, just because, you know, when, you know, Manford is finally going to plead guilty, it's going to attract a lot more reporters. um, And the public didn't have as much of a heads up the way we did in Virginia. So there was definitely that kind of tension. Um, but it was it was almost anticlimactic. Um, and I think I wrote about this for Prime, but like plea hearings are very formal. You know, the judge asks all these questions to make sure that Manafort understands what he's getting himself into and all of that. Um, and so while it was super momentous, it, it happened very quickly and in a very formal proceeding with no room for any kind of fireworks. Um, But, you know, everybody looked really calm. You know, you walked in and um, you saw the defense team chatting with the prosecution. You know, they've clearly spent a lot of time together um, and were fairly friendly with each other on the sidelines of the Virginia trial. Um, Manafort always has his poker face on. You know, I saw him crack a smile when he walked into the courtroom. Um, And then again, while chatting with his attorneys. But, um, for most of the proceedings, he was facing away from us, so we could not see his face. Um, it was a little weird to hear his voice because we didn't really hear him speak throughout the Virginia trial, but he was annoyingly soft-spoken while speaking with the judge during his um, pleadings, so we didn't really get to hear kind of the tone of his voice really as he kind of had resigned himself to the guilty plea. Um but that's kind of my sense of it. It just it all happened crazy quickly and was a huge relief no, that we don't have to cover the trial, but also kind of sad. Right, right. <laughs> that's a whole other whole other matter on 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 that. Now, wasn't there, as I recall, uh, there was when you know because in in the anticipation of that, I guess it was as I'm recall as I am recalling this. Thursday night, we had very strong indications there was going to be a plea deal, but 
it, there was no certainty, or I don't think even people thought it would be a plea deal with cooperation. And then as things came out, I guess as the superseding indictment came out, a lot of legal observers that at least I was watching on TV are sort of like, you know, what what we see in that superseding indictment really kind of makes it seem like there's, you know, there might be a cooperation agreement. But there was that moment when I believe it was Andrew Weissman who said in the courtroom a cooperation agreement. And that was the moment everybody knew kind of like what we were dealing with. Tell us about that moment. If if that moment was, was you know, gasp worthy as I'm imagining it to have been. You know, it's funny because in these courtrooms, you don't really have the time or energy to gasp because with it being a lot of reporters, like you're just kind of furiously taking notes. Um, so yep, I didn't, yep. I don't, I don't think there was perhaps like as much of a like visual or audible reaction, but I do remember like catching that and hearing him say, you know, cooperation and being like, aha, that's the word I've been listening for, you know, for like a good 20 minutes. And then did, right. I, I'm asking Caitlin a question cause I wasn't there. Um, <laughs> did judge Amy Berman Jackson, she's the, the DC judge overseeing the DC case. Did she have the rule in place that people couldn't run out in the midst of proceedings? Right, yeah. So we were locked into the courtroom. You know, if you were in there, um, then you were not allowed to leave. Um, and I remember it was a little bit of a tough call that we made because there was a media room where I could have watched the live stream, you know, on my computer. But um, we decided, you know, that the whole point of me being there was to be in the room and kind of get a sense of it. So no one's really allowed to leave and things are moving really quickly. You know what I mean? Like Weissman mentions cooperation and then he's moving on to, you know, continue talking about um, this came while he was summarizing in a very lengthy manner um, Manafort's statement of offense. So he was just going through a lot of details of um, kind of what Manafort was pleading to. And Caitlin, how long was that hearing from start to finish? Uh, yeah, it was about an hour. And so presumably, and this is, I'm, all, I'm always just interested in the logistics of how these things work. Presumably, the, the, the cable networks that probably have like 20 people down there, they have people in the room, also in the overflow room where you can, I, I assume, in the, so in the overflow room, I guess you can just be sitting there with your iPhone kind of like, like tweeting in real time is that how is that how that works i believe so i was yeah. not in there um but yeah i mean the, the rule of thumb is you're not allowed to record anything yourself so you're still kind of in a place right. of you just you know take notes as best you can but you are allowed to have your computer have your phone and sort of send those notes out as they're happening whether that's the form of tweets or stories or you know emails to your editors um you're allowed to so that's where kind of the immediate news was coming on friday at least as i was following right. from people in that room Right, right, right. Okay, so now we have this, we, we, we know that there is a, it's hard to call anything in this case standard, but a kind of all-encompassing uh, cooperation agreement with Manafort. Uh, we don't, it's all sort of at some level speculation about what it is he's going to cooperate about. Um, this is less from being in the courtroom than just covering this trial. What is your, where do we go from here? What is he cooperating about? Um, either what do we know or when are we going to know more? What can you tell us? I mean, one thing that's been pointed out to me multiple times by his sort of allies and supporters is that he, you know, left the campaign in, in August. Um, and I know something that we talked about when Rick Gates flipped 
was, you know, maybe Rick Gates ultimately is the more valuable witness anyway, because he was he stayed on the Trump campaign through the general election, was involved, um, you know, beyond that, had a, you know, a very top role in the inauguration committee. Um, so, you know, there are at least moments throughout this that I thought maybe Rick Gates was going to be the more valuable witness anyway. You know, that being said, um, obviously, Paul Manafort was really is still really valuable to special counsel Mueller. We wouldn't have seen this plea deal otherwise. So there's obviously something that Mueller thinks that Manafort can have to offer, whether it's about his time in the Trump campaign or whether it's about sort of other things that have been dredged up throughout this his case. Um, you know, the other attorneys, the other lobbyists who are, were involved in this this Ukraine lobbying work or what, I we don't know. But... You know, as you said, the the plea agreement makes pretty clear that, you know, all bets are off and he's expected to to cooperate, you know, wherever it's required. So is that one? And this is, again, there's probably there's just not a lot we know here. But but one of the things that, you know, to some extent. Trump supporters bring this up, but it's true as, as, as something we do not know, that it's clear that there was there, there was a major Mueller wanted his cooperation on something and clearly saw it as very valuable. I mean, I think even even prior to the uh, cooperation agreement, that's a great re- that's that's a huge factor in why these trials were happening in the first place. That doesn't mean that they weren't real crimes, but clearly, you know, Mueller uh, refers out things that aren't kind of closely tied to his investigation. Um, He didn't have to kind of go so deep on Manafort. So clearly, uh, he thought Manafort was very important. Um, But we don't know as a fact that the, the cooperation is specifically about Trump, President Trump. And I guess in theory, we don't know that it is even exactly about people in Trump's inner circle. I mean, obviously, Russian... Uh, intelligence subversion, uh, Russian organized crime. These are things that the U.S. government has a huge interest in. And and Paul Manafort (laughs) clearly knows quite a bit about. Um, So do you have any, like, is it, should we be looking at, what is the next thing? I mean, we know that there's all these, that, that it seems like some new Yahoo out of Roger Stone's circle ends up going before the grand jury like every week at this point. Is he the next thing? What's the, what is the next, from a courtroom point of view, from, an, from the point of view of the Mueller investigation, what is the next thing? I mean, as you mentioned, the Roger Stone aspect, obviously, is, what pe- is people keeping people engaged, just given who's been coming in and out of that grand jury. The other thing I'd, I'd point out that I thought was really interesting was um, the plea deal a couple weeks ago that came with uh, Sam Patton, the GOP lobbyist um, who pleaded guilty, and what was interesting about that scenario is that it was technically a you know a, a DC prosecution, you know a federal prosecution, but the DC U.S. Attorney's Office, not Mueller's prosecution. But the plea agreement still contained an indication that Patton would be expected to cooperate with Mueller. And what was interesting about that plea was what it came, what came out was that a this lobbyist was working with a lot of the same clientele that Manafort was working with until his work sort in Ukraine sort of dried up in 2014. This lobbyist was working with those same people after that and into 2016 and 2017. And that this lobbyist also was, you know, facilitated a straw purchase 
for these Ukrainian um, politicians and uh, figures to buy inauguration tickets. Uh, so we're seeing that that might be a new area that will be of interest is what was happening around the inauguration committee. And if some of these characters that have been in Paul Manafort's orbit, you know, since 2006, 2000, 2008, uh, are still kind of in orbit around Trump affiliated people or events. So let me ask you just a, a, a final question, and I appreciate you two making the time for this. I have been interested, as, and I'm certainly not the only one, a lot of people have been interested um, for a long time about how was it that Paul Manafort found himself working for the Trump campaign in the first place? And at least as the modalities of that, it seems like this friend of Trump, Tom Barrick, is the one who Manafort went to and basically said, hey, I got to get in with Trump. And Barrick was already kind of an advisor to Trump and his campaign. And Barrick kind of put it together. And um, that, it, it's so critical how he got to be working in the Trump campaign in the first place, because you know, there's this stuff about, oh, you know, he, he managed delegates for Ford in 1976, but that's ancient history. It might as well be like the Roman Empire in terms of like having anything to do with how, uh, uh, you know, conventions, political campaigns work now. So, and, and, and what reminded me is when you talked about uh, inauguration tickets, because, and also the fact that Rick Gates was there kind of throughout, even though... Manafort was tossed in August. And as some of our listeners will know, Rick Gates, after that, stayed in the campaign. And then after the campaign, he went to work with Tom Barrick, who was running the inauguration committee. And after that was done, he went to work for Tom Barrick's company. So did any of this kind of like, how did, how did these guys get to work for the Trump campaign in the first place? Or what's Tom Barrick's role here? Did any of that come up either formally in the trial or just in sort of the atmospherics around the trial? There's actually a kind of a, a role, a motion um, that limited the amount of we would hear about the Trump campaign. It was limited to this, you know, one specific loan um, or it was actually technically two loans, but one specific banker that he you know, worked with on a loan and that banker, you know, was ultimately uh, at least thinking that he was going to get some sort of position in the Trump campaign or excuse me, in the he got a position in the Trump campaign and thought he was going to get a Trump uh, position in the Trump cabinet. But there was actually sort of a limitation on how much we were going to hear about the Trump campaign in the, in the Virginia trial that makes it hard to kind of suss out where all these pictures fit against that back or where all these pieces fit against that backdrop. Um, yeah, I mean, the most constant reminder was just the mention of Manafort's Trump Tower apartment, which was largely referred to just as like the Fifth Avenue apartment. Um, but every once in a while, someone mentioned Trump Tower, and that kind of just could, reminds me of that like small edge, I suppose, that Manafort had when trying to get in with Trump, you know, that he was a neighbor. Right. Right, right. Well, listen. Thank you. Thank both of you so much for all the work on on these. On the, we thought it was going to be trials. It was only one trial, um, and 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 just in general on the whole on our reporting on the whole Trump Russia probe. So thank you so much. And so for both of you, what are what are we? 
I, I guess we're sort of uh, Kavanaugh looms pretty large right now. But what are we working on now on the on the on the Russia front? Is there are there immediate pieces that we're on right now? Is sort of the next thing? Are we kind of catching our breath? I mean, I, I assume you saw that uh, the sentencing for. Uh Former National Security Advisor Flynn um, it appears will be happening in some time in November. You know, they they filed sort of flagging for the court that, that there is a certain week in November that they want that to happen. Um, I think it's after the right. election, so that'll obviously be kind of an, another huge moment because that will kind of sort of signal that whatever his involvement was, it might be coming to an end. Um, so I think that's at least on you know the specific calendar what I'm watching. You know, there's all this sort of speculation about what are the DOJ's rules on going quiet before a midterm election and whether, you know, someone like Roger Stone, who wasn't, you know, isn't running for office, was never really even a formal campaign advisor. He had this sort of pseudo formal role, um, whether that even counts. So on one hand, there's right. some, some belief maybe Mueller will go quiet for the next couple of weeks. On the other hand, we don't know that for sure. And maybe he's got some stuff that he's going to reveal that, you know, doesn't really com- comply with or doesn't fit within this DOJ limitation on going quiet in the lead up to a midterm. Got it. Okay. Well, Tierney Sneed, Kayla McNeil, both work out of our of our DC office. Thank you so much for coming on today and for all your work uh, on this story. Uh, let me remind our listeners that Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee sponsors the Josh Marshall podcast. Uh, ready to give Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. Thanks so much. Talk to you next week.